Um, so, if you were to, to write a list of uh, words that have been said to you that have punched you in the gut, I'm wondering what would that list entail? Um, a lot of the words that have punched me in the gut, I've heard over the uh, telephone. And uh, one of those uh, instances I'll never forget, uh, many years ago we were um, um, pastoring a very small growing uh, church, Matthias, and uh, a girl that was going to our uh, church community, um, all of a sudden I, I get a phone call, and the crazy thing about phone calls, even if it's from a person that calls you six or seven times a day, which some of you guys have those folks, uh, they're called creepers, and uh, also best friends, kind of simultaneous. Um, I got a call, and, and it's always surprising, you know, even when you talk to those folks, because you never know what is going to be shared. And they said, hey, uh, Mark, you need to come up to the hospital. Um, Jake has uh, fallen from a 60-foot cliff, and it looks like she's going she's gonna to die. So I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not, at, I'm not at the cliff. I'm not in the hospital. And so, like, all you have are the words, Right? And so from that moment to the moment where I like rush to get ready and then I head to my car, that whole journey from phone to hospital, um, all the thoughts, all the emotions, you guys have experienced this, right? Like the call that something's wrong or the call that you need to do something or the call that this is, like the time until you see it can be absolutely gut-wrenching. And I, I mean, I remember physically feeling like I had been punched. I, I thought that day that, that we would lose uh, um, what had become a good friend. And so I get up to the, the hospital, and the, the elevator opens, and it opens to a lobby filled with hundreds, of, literally hundreds of people. So friends and uh, pastors of other churches and family, this whole area is flooded. And so I ask the first person that I see, I'm like, so what's the latest? Like, what's going on? How is she doing? Well, Mark, the doctor just came out. They're giving her a 1% chance of living. She's in a coma. Her brain is bruised, broken ribs and wrists. It's just not looking good. She literally free fell 60 foot from a cliff. And, um, and then I remember the first time I went into the room. So that whole time, like just hearing about it in one moment was completely transformed when I actually saw her. And um, the thoughts, the images, the things that went in my mind at that moment. A year later, this was written about uh, her experience, and um, Jake survived, and a year of recovery. I feel like I got to witness a miracle. I was at the hospital, um, I don't know, almost every single day for several months, praying and asking God to do a work. Um, many of you guys know Jake, and uh, what a great story of survival. Uh, you can take that down, Andrew, but um, Moses... <laughs> Uh, has actually got to go through that same experience. Uh, God told Moses on the top of the mountain that his people were going crazy. And so from the time that Moses hears from God until the time that he gets down, it's that moment where like words have punched him in the stomach, um, where anxiety potentially or worry or what is this going to look like or feel like or be like, all of those things are going through his mind. Again, you guys have all been there. You've all had to wait to see something to truly experience it. Um, I feel like tonight I need to communicate this before we start because this text tonight, uh, oh my goodness, uh, it, is, it, is, it is crazy powerful. It's also incredibly heavy. Uh, I, I really love you guys. And I can never overstate that or say that enough. 
uh, I just talked about the beauty of relationships. I consider it um, a blessing and a huge honor to be able to journey with you. And please don't hear that as lip service or a nice pleasantry. Uh, everything that we're going to talk about tonight, everything that I share, I pray are God's words and our pray are with a motive of love. All right? So I want to pray that that happens. And then, guys, we're going to launch into this thing. And there is so much here. All right? So let's pray and uh, prepare our hearts. Um, God, help us receive your words tonight in love. Help us hear your truth tonight in power. And I pray, God, that you'll calm uh, my heart uh, as we journey through this, Lord. In your great and holy name, amen. So turn to Exodus chapter 32. Um, last week, the people were impatient. They uh, would not wait on Moses. He had gone up to meet with God on the top of the mountain and spent 40 days and 40 nights uh, up there. And then some a time amidst all that, they go to Aaron, who is their leader, and say, look, uh, this Moses, we don't know what's going on up there. He's partying on his own, or him and God are a little having, you know, singing kumbaya, or something's going on right there. He's gone, so we need to do something. Let's build a, a golden uh, calf. Let's build an idol. So Aaron has everyone take off their earrings. He fashions a golden calf. God tells Moses about it, and verse 15 picks up where we left off. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. First of all, it's, it's important to remember who Moses is, okay? This isn't like your young strapping lad, okay? Uh, some of you guys have just an epic grandpa that's like 80 plus. How many of you guys have an 80 plus grandpa, okay? Right. You know how epic he is, and at the same time, as strong as he is or as great as he is, he's also decently frail, okay? Moses, like this grandpa Moses, who like had to climb up this mountain and now has to get down the mountain holding two massive tablets. You guys see what I'm saying? Like this, he, he doesn't have no room for his cane, you know, he has to like one hand the two tablets. I don't know how he does it. I'm just saying that the journey is very, very difficult. Now, much to how many of you guys grew up or understand, many of you guys thought that the Ten Commandments were written like five and five. We've talked about this before. But it was actually front and back on both sides, and both tablets had each of the commandments on them representing both sides of the covenant. So, Grandpa Moses hears from God that chaos is going down under uh, below, and so Grandpa Moses makes his way down this mountain holding these two tablets. Verse 16, I love this. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Uh, just so you know what we believe here at Matthias, because there's many uh, people that don't believe this uh, under the premise of Christianity, uh, we believe that this is the work of God and the words of God, that the scripture is God's word inerrant, okay? Uh, we don't pick and choose here. We don't say, oh, this is true and this isn't. Uh, we believe here that God uh, used man often to write these things, but that this is God's inerrant word. And so the same thing that uh, was said about the tablets, we could say about the scripture. We claim victory in this. And now, verse 17, the drama begins. Check this out. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. <laughs> uh, first of all, of all people that would know, it, it would be Joshua. In Exodus chapter 17, Joshua was chosen to fight against Amalek. So he's like had some war experience. Um, how many of you guys have been to the St. Louis Symphony? Okay, um, mostly girls and uh, six of you. Good. Um, in a moment to share how cultured I am, uh, this past weekend I went to the St. Louis Symphony. 
uh, had a, 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 you know, a cup of tea and, and um, sat and enjoyed the violins. And um, the reason why I went to the St. Louis Symphony was because Gladiator was playing on the big screen. And the St. Louis Symphony was playing the score. Are you kidding me? I mean, this thing was ridiculous, okay? So you have Gladiator on the screen, full screen like a movie, and then the symphony underneath the screen playing like all of the, you know, all the epic songs of Gladiator, okay? Look, there were, there were some chicks, there were some females that were in front of us, all right? And I was like, man, props. Like, you know, I was like, hey, do you guys just have season tickets to the symphony or something hanging out? Like, it's about to, you know, it's about to go down right here. I heard some sounds of war. All right, at the St. Louis Symphony. I mean, it was epic, like all the war scenes with the symphony playing. I just wanted to like run around the aisles, you know. I was just, it was <laughs> exhilarating, right? Well, this is that moment. Joshua hears all of these noises, and he's like, "It sounds like it sounds like war." But here's what Moses says: It sounds like. And again, you know, his maybe he needs to turn up his hearing aid a little bit. But he said, "It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or verse 18, the sound of the cry of defeat, but." The sound of singing that I hear. Now, I was intrigued by this, so I did a little bit of research. The, the Hebrew word for singing is synonymous and often interpreted as crying. Here's what Moses is saying. It's not victory. It's not defeat. It's, in between, it's chaos. I hear the sounds of chaos. It's like singing and crying and it's just like, whatever sin sounds like, that's probably what, this, what he's talking about here. It sounds like sin, okay? I can't even describe it. It's, it's chaotic. And verse 19, here we go. Look at this. And as soon as he came near the camp and what? What's the word? And saw. You see, the whole point from coming down the mountain, meeting Joshua, his assistant, who had waited about halfway, all the way down to, the ta- all the way down to seeing this, has been that anticipation, that what does it look like? What does it feel like? Now he sees it, okay? All of a sudden he sees it. He sees the calf and the dancing, and look what happens. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now, some of you guys would be like, this was a really bad move, man. You're really old. Now you're going to have to go back up there and get you some more, you know? Like, it has the appearance of an impulsive thrower, I, for one, am a very impulsive thrower. Anyone else? Okay. I love to throw things. Uh, if you've ever been on a retreat with me, uh, the college retreat in particular, like I, I throw food. That's what I do. Uh, I think it like helps the environment. And so it's somewhat, I know, wasteful at times, but it's really not. Um, one time I, I was a youth pastor, and uh, again, I'm an impulsive thrower. I don't think before I, th- I throw often. And, uh, and so we, we were at Steak and Shake. And we started at a very long table. We started to get in a food fight because that's what you do when you go to restaurants uh, and you're immature. And, um, and so uh, I started throwing things. And you know those little like, those little like, um, you know, they got those little fries. They don't do much damage. That's kind of how it started. And it always escalates, you know, because you realize these fries don't, they don't hurt, right? Uh, so then, then we start throwing some other things. My buddy finally, all the way down at the end of the table, throws like a wadded up sugar packet that he had dipped in soda. So it had a little bit of power to it thing hits me instinctively and impulsively, okay? And if you've been a steak and shake, you know this is true. The only thing right in front of me was a glass pepper shaker, okay? Again, I'm not, so I just, I grab this glass pepper shaker without even impulsive thrower, 
I like rear back like a quarterback and I throw this thing towards the end of the, towards the end of the table. Now there were a good, like, I don't know, like, you know, a second or so where like, just when it left my hand, I realized like what I had done. I was like trying to grab it out of my throw, you know, like come back. So I'm watching it like come at the face of my friend and it would look like something like this, like it's coming at him. He's like, you know, like leans to the side. Just misses his ear. I mean, this gla- think about it, if the glass would have like smacked him, right? It would have been amazing. It goes, <laughs> it goes just over his shoulder, right? And just shatters all over the steak and shake floor. And there was this moment, right, where all of us are like looking around. And they were all like, yes! You know, like this was amazing. So we did it again. And um, we didn't. But um, uh, some of you guys like to impulsively throw. I, for one, am. I, I don't think this is what Moses does. I don't think he comes down and throws a temper tantrum. I don't think this is what he does. I don't think he comes down and he's like, all right, guys, like, I'm just going to take my ball and go home. Here are the tablets. Chuck and duck. I'm out of here. I, I, I don't think that's what he does. Think about this image. These two tablets represent the covenant. They represent both parties of the covenant, God and the people. And so when these tablets are broken, there's a very powerful image that in this moment, at least and certainly only from the people's side, the covenant's broken. So I don't think Moses is throwing a tantrum. I think he's frustrated and angry. But we're going to see later, I think it's because he loves his people. He loves these people. And at times he has struggled to even see them as his people. But now he loves them. He throws them down. And now look what Grandpa Moses does in verse 20. He took the calf that they had made. Grandpa Moses, picture this. And burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. <laughs> Grandpa Moses like comes over to this golden calf, lights it on fire, and it burns quickly, right? I told you guys last week, it was a wooden infrastructure with a gold overlay. So this thing would have burned quickly. So he comes, like picture your grandfather, this like epic, just reprimanding you, right? He burns it to the ground and then <laughs> the scripture said... He puts the powder of the calf in the people's water, right? So what did this look like? Does he like say, all right, all million of you line up, right? And he gets his little like satchel of calf ash, you know, and then he just like takes it and like dribbles it in people's cups. Oh, no, you get, a, you get an extra. You get an extra. I, I don't think that, you know, A, that's not practical. I don't think that's the way it went down. I think probably what happened is he went to the source of water dumped uh, the, the powder of the calf in there and the bitterness in the water was a reminder of what the people had done. I actually think this is one of the most powerful parts in the whole book of Exodus because it shows that idolatry can be destroyed. And not just destroyed, but destroyed quickly. I think one of the greatest dangers that you and I have is that we exist with the premise that our idolatry cannot go away. Uh, that the issues, the struggles, the sin, the things that we battle every day are too powerful to ever cease. I believe one of the greatest lies that the enemy uh, plants in your heart and in your mind is that you will forever be this way. I believe differently. I believe that our idolatry can be destroyed. I believe it will be one day. 
For every idol has the same inside. It's very, very fragile. Listen, it's very fragile. It doesn't seem that way. It seems sturdy and it's shiny. I mean, it has a lure to it. Okay? You name your struggle. It doesn't matter. Whatever your idol is, it has a lure to it. It has a piece of your heart. But on the inside, I'm telling you, it is fragile. As shiny as it is, as alluring as it is, it will burn quickly. And it will one day. There will only be one thing that stands, and that is the Godhead and his people. But everything else, my friends, everything else will prove themselves to be fragile. Your idols can be destroyed, and I believe can be destroyed tonight. The thing that has defined your life, the thing that for the last four or five months has grabbed you so tightly you feel like you can never, ever be a loosed captive. All of those things can be destroyed. This idol was destroyed. How much more can our idolatry be destroyed in Christ? Listen, we're going to take this journey tonight, and I recognize fully, every single one of us in here have idols. Every single person, Christian and not, we have idols. And I think you'd agree with me. Right now, we're seeing that idolatry is no good. If Grandpa Moses comes down and doesn't celebrate the idol and he burns it, that tells you and I that idolatry is bad. Can we agree? Okay? Everyone say, idolatry is bad. Okay, we get that. We get that. But what to do with it, that's what we struggle with. And I'm here to tell you right now, it can be destroyed. Moses drops it in the water, and now we have an insane conversation between him and good old Uncle Aaron. Check this out. And Moses said to Aaron, verse 21, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Three times in this text, we're going to see this sin of idolatry called the great sin. Three times. This is the first. He says to Aaron, what did these people do to you? Now, when you read the Bible, isn't it kind of fun to think about how this would have been said? Do you, this would be weird. Um, do you ever, like, act it out, ever? Like, with your friends or by yourself? Do you, like, do you ever, like, create, like, a melodrama of the scripture? I don't ever either, I promise. <laughs> but one time I imagined uh, Moses saying this very sarcastically, right? And my friend, like, said it sarcastically, you know? And, and other times I, I pictured Moses saying this in a very, with, like, a very angry, harsh tone. But Deuteronomy records Moses describing this story. And I, I think actually this shows us the tone that he has. Check this out, Deuteronomy. And the Lord was so angry, this is Moses writing, with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. But here's what Moses said. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. So we get this picture that, that Moses comes down. And yes, man, his, he is frustrated, angry at this sin. But he, he loves, I mean, he's praying for Aaron. He's praying for Aaron's heart. He's desiring Aaron to be humbled. He's gracious with Aaron. Um, listen, uh, I celebrate a community where people can be challenged. Um, one of the greatest difficulties in our conversation is if it ever gets too real, then often it, we get defensive. We kind of like fight for our own territory. We set up barriers and walls. And so what it tells everyone is, listen, we have to like have conversation that can 
Like once it passes a certain point and it gets too real or too challenging, you just saw how my attitude's going to get. I'm going to get defensive, and so it's better just to have frivolous comfort. I praise God that, that prayerfully we're seeking to be a body where people can challenge one another in love and in grace. I, for one, have certainly been reprimanded at times in tremendous anger. Uh, I've been called to the table. I mean, in youth ministry, I was like keeping a tally of how many times people yelled at me, you know. Mark, you shouldn't duct tape junior hires to the wall. Yeah, probably not, but it was fun. Mark, you shouldn't do that, you know, like all of these things, right? And yeah, duct taping junior hires was probably wrong. I should have done it to senior hires. But, but you know, either way, I have my, I have my share of scars. Uh, the, what I'm saying is oftentimes it's your friends that can see your idolatry and not you. And so if we cannot uh, challenge one another without getting defensive, uh, then all of our conversation, my friends, will just be um, flighty, lacks significance. Moses prays for Aaron, and he wants this conversation to be real. Let's see how Aaron responds. Not good. Verse 22, and Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Here's what he says. Look, you know the people that they are set on evil. How do you deal with sin? This is how Aaron deals with it. First thing that he does, all right? Next slide. First thing that he does, and I know none of you ever struggle with this, okay? So let's just talk about Aaron, not you. He points the finger at others. Moses, you know these people. Like, you know what they're prone to? Deflects from himself, not willing to take ownership of everything. We, we start learning this as kids. I mean, kids are brilliant at this, at pointing the finger at others. And somehow, like, I buy it sometimes, like in my own kids, right? I mean, we'll come in the house sometimes, and a room will just be a complete disaster. And I got three options, you know? I got the angel, I got the devil, and then I have mini devil, you know? <laughs> and, you know, I say that in jest, um, but in honesty. And so I have, and so, you know, devil number one, older devil, he'll, he'll uh, and I, God love him, right? He's just, he's, he's not a believer yet, Okay. So until he's a believer, Scripture says he's a son of the devil. So I can, you know. It's 1 John. It's 1 John. Look it up. All right? Okay? He doesn't. He doesn't know Jesus yet. I'm praying he does. Trust me. Okay? So I'll come in. A room will be a disaster. And I'll look at, I'll look at Dawson. And I love this kid. And we're so quiet. Dawson, hey, who, who destroyed the room? And he will have the audacity to look at his angelic sister. Right? who's sitting just next to him, literally singing Kumbaya with a Bible in her hand. You know what I'm saying? It's like quoting Jeremiah 28, like right there, right? And because the kid's so darn cute, I'll like believe him for a second, right? I'll look at Avery and I'll be like, Avery, and then I'll be like, no, you didn't do this, you know? And like Dawson and Maddox will like smile like, he bought it, man, you know, we're, we're good to go, you know? We learn this as kids. Uh, why do we deflect ownership, though? Why do we do it? We don't want to deal with the what? The consequences with the penalty? I mean, in this case, Dawson thinks that if Avery gets blamed, then he's not going to be punished. Aaron deflects it, worrying about his own punishment, worrying about his fate. Um, he says, hey, it's their fault. Uh, now we get another great clue into what he does with sin. Maybe you do this too, verse 23. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. He quotes exactly what they told him. And so at first glance, you're like, what's the problem with that? He's conniving. This is what he's doing. Here's the second issue. He makes himself feel good with some truth. So he caresses his sin with a little bit of sugar on top. A little bit of truth. Because this is true. But it's shrouded with all kinds of deceit and sin. I would say that that some of you, if not all of us in some regard, are brilliant at this. Justifying our sin with hints of truth, a little bit of truth that somehow casts a shadow over all of the deceit. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't work that way. When you don't own your sin, you prolong, prolong the sin. When you don't own it, every minute that goes by of your lack of ownership of it, of the sin of the idolatry, it prolongs it. And that's what Aaron's doing. He's, he's prolonging the inevitable. The humble Aaron, the repentant Aaron says, Moses, uh, I built a golden calf. And this was completely idiotic. And I need to repent to God, most importantly to you. Here I am, broken knee. That's the repentant Aaron. The non-repentant Aaron says the most stupidest thing I've ever read in the Bible ever. Verse 24 so I said to them, let any of you, uh, let any of you uh, who have gold take it off. This is what Aaron says. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. It's like the fire, like, births a calf. Listen. <laughs> Don't you picture Grandpa Moses, like, pausing for a minute, just kind of chuckling? Like, you, <laughs> seriously? You think I'm going to believe this? Maybe, maybe Aaron's taking like the miraculous route. Like Moses, you'll never believe the work of God, you know? I had all these people bring me their earrings and their gauges, and then I, I, threw, I threw them in a fire, and Yahweh produced this beautiful calf for us to worship him, right? So like maybe he's going the miraculous route. Um, I'll say this about how he deflects his sin. Uh, number three here. Uh, idolatry was accidental or even miraculous. It's how he deals with the sin. I think this story will help you. Uh, I had the first computer on my dorm floor. Hard to imagine those days, right? The first computer, okay? Uh, and I, I was the only Christian on a dorm a floor of uh, 40 guys. Walton Third was our hall. Uh, filled with all kinds of chaos. If, I, uh, if you only had the time to hear all the stories and uh, the censorship to hear them. I had, I, had the first, I had the first computer. And so what unbeknownst to me started happening is my computer became the dorm a porn computer. While I was gone uh, at football or class, um, all the guys would come in my room and they would watch porn together. Um, this is how idolatry works. Is we convince ourselves... It, we convince ourselves it's accidental. If I would have come in that room and been like, guys, like, this is horrible. What are you guys doing with my computer screen while, like, trying to, you know, like, look at the images? Guys, you, are you serious? Like, how are you even do, doing this, you know? And I, I sit down and I, like, we convince ourselves that somehow that's okay. You know, we've kind of talked against it a little bit, but we've participated in it. Thankfully, that's not how I dealt with that situation. 
I love these guys through it. And I said, you know, look, this is, this is unacceptable. This is uh, my stuff. Please, if you want to, you know, if you want to do this, then you're going to have to do it elsewhere, okay? I love those guys through it. Many of you guys know my story. Uh, 15, of my dorm, uh, 15 of the guys in my dorm came to Christ a year later. It's crazy, right? So God certainly used all that situation. I'm asking you right now, in what situations are you convincing yourself that your idolatry is accidental? I just... Man, I, you never believe it. I was just like sitting over there on that couch. All of a sudden, there were like 16 beers in my hands, you know? I didn't even like put them up to my mouth. Boom, a straw showed up and just like went beer by, you know? And who would have thought? And the next, you know, it was crazy. Like the miracles that the Lord can do with alcohol. <laughs> and, and we laugh, right? Because, because it's true. Some of the sin that is dominating your life the most, you have justified it to the point where you believe it's not sin. And so instead of owning your sin, which is God's great grace to us, you're like, how is that a great grace? It's a great grace because he allows us to see it, repent of it, receive his grace, and then walk. Every day that that sin goes unowned is another day that that sin is prolonged. And I just, for you and for me, I desire freedom, joy, hope. And what I've learned more and more is the more that we're encapsulated with idolatry, we lose joy, hope is gone, and we live as dead people walking around. Aaron justifies his sin. Here's Moses' response. And listen, if you thought the drama was like over, oh my goodness, guys, check this out. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, I, like I don't think we, like you get this image, right? Like they're go, going crazy. For Aaron had let them break, uh, break loose to the derision of their enemies. Now that, this word means to the laughing stock of their enemies. In other words, if, if the Israelites' enemies like happened upon this party, like look at these crazy people all like dancing around the, around the golden calf. Like now is the time we pounce. Okay, that's what Moses is saying. These, these people are a complete laughingstock to our enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate. In one of the most epic verses in the entire book of Exodus, he stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all of the sons of Levi gathered around him. You picture this? The idol has been burned. And now he says, who is on the Lord's side? Everyone who is, let's go. And the scripture says the sons of Levi come to him. Really interesting. It's the Levites who will be the priests. Moses and Aaron are Levites. And for whatever reason, it's that tribe that responds. Now, one of the most transformative verses in my entire gospel formation was this text in Luke. Check this out. Jesus. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? Question mark. Right? We all like have our, our Christmas sweaters in mind right now and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Do you think that that's why I've come? He says, no, I tell you, but rather division. I remember reading this for the first time. I was like, is this really in the Bible? Like I thought Jesus like came for, you know, unity with all and, and you know. And Jesus himself, in the red letters in my Bible, Luke 12, he's saying, I haven't come for peace, I've come for division. 
For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son. Some of you guys know this. Son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And that's not just because you don't like your in-laws. And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. People will be divided. But what will they be divided by? And what will they be divided through? Jesus. There are not multiple choice, four or five different options. Moses doesn't say, hey, who's on the Lord's side? Come over here. If you're on the golden calf side, you kind of come over here. And then if you're on the indifferent side, you come over here. And then if you're a, all of your favorite answer in college, none of the above side, you go over there. Okay? He doesn't give a multiple choice option. Why? Because there are always only two. The Lord's side or not. You guys understand this? What he says here echoes through the halls of history. Are you on the Lord's side? Yes or no? That's the only question. And so the sons of Levi come to him. And now you're like, oh, I'm sure this will end pleasant, right? This will be really, really nice. He said to them, thus says the Lord, it's God's idea. Put your sword on each side of you and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. Okay. Uh, this wasn't on the felt board in Sunday school when I learned this story. Okay. Like when you learn the golden calf and you're seven, the story doesn't end with the sons of Levi killing 3,000 people with swords. So it's hard for us to understand why God would call these people to do that. First, let's talk about what they do. I did as much research here so that we could be the most learned. Um, I think what's happening here is they are literally going, at least household by household, if not one by one, and they're saying, are you on the Lord's side? And anyone who answered yes received mercy, which all of us should say, man, God is merciful, because at the sheer idea of idolatry, you should have wiped them all out. We're the same story. At the sheer moment of idolatry, he should have killed us all. He hasn't. So are you on the Lord's side or not? Anyone who said, no, I'm not on the Lord's side, killed. You're like, Mark, but that, like, what kind of God would do that? What, what kind of God would, would allow his people to kill their own people? It's because belief in God is a life and death Existence, scenario, situation, all the time. We don't really get that here in America, and I'm not going to go into the, like, the classic teaching about how America has it so great right now. I just want to share a personal story. Um, we uh, had the chance to smuggle Bibles in Laos. I felt like, like the Indiana Jones of Christianity or something. Like it, it's like my long-lost dream. Uh, Laos was a communist country. We were partnered with a missionary there, and I had five Bibles wrapped as Christmas presents in the bottom of my bag. We were kind of like laughing about it, and it was, you know, really cool. And then all of a sudden, we got in the taxi that was going to take us to the border. The problem was the taxi uh, driver could understand English. And so the missionary who was with us, who was going to tell us the strategy, now couldn't because the taxi driver could speak English. You know, we were like, hey, man, what's up? And he's like, hey, what's going on, guys? We're like, I problema. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is not going to. Anyway, um, 
So we get to the border. Dude standing there with an M16, right? And he had told us before, like, look, like if he asks what's in your bag, like there's going to be a, a stream of questions that happen. And ultimately, if your bag gets searched and they find those Bibles, at the very minimum, you're deported from the country forever. And there's Christian families that are now in prison. So we don't know what's going to happen. And in, in that moment, as I have these Bibles on my backpack and I come to the border, like I realize how much the gospel is life and death, how much belief in God is life and death. So nothing's changed. Uh, for us in this room right now, our belief, what we say about the Lord is life and death. You may not realize it. You may uh, be classifying it as insignificant until you get older or until your family gets situated or until you accomplish this or that. I'm just telling you right now, your belief, what you say about God, are you on the Lord's side? That answer is a life and death answer. And like I can only pray, I'm praying that the weight of that falls on each of you. Um, imagine killing people. Radical disobedience called for radical obedience. And then Moses like encourages them. He says in verse 29, and Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of God of the Lord, each one at the cost of his own what? Son and, his, and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. What does that tell you? Some of these guys killed who? Family members. It's the same thing that we just saw in Luke. Belief in God is a life and death situation. So the next day Moses said to the, said to the people, this is awesome. You have sinned a great sin. The second time we see a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. He's just come down. He's old. He's going to go back up. Okay. I'm going to go back up to the Lord. Perhaps... I can make atonement for your sin. I mean, come on. Wouldn't you as a leader at this point be like, I'm getting out of here. You guys don't follow instructions. You're building golden calves. You guys are idiots. I'm going to find my own way. The Lord's going to lead me, and we're going to find his land that he's promised. Instead, he says, perhaps I'll go plead with the Lord, and perhaps atonement will be made. I have a greater promise for you tonight than perhaps. Look at what Ephesians says. This is awesome, awesome, awesome. Next slide. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Let me just take out the perhaps from you and say, in Christ, redemption of sins, forgiveness of trespasses, okay? Jesus didn't go to the cross and say, perhaps my sacrifice will do the trick. He did. He redeemed, he saved, he made a way for you and I. It's beautiful. We don't have to bank on perhaps. Don't you love the fact, for those of you that are in Christ, that you believe in a leader and a movement where he didn't in an epic speech say, hey, listen, I'm going to go do my best up there. We'll see what happens. It wasn't leaving anything to chance. He lived perfectly, took you and I on his shoulders, and through his blood saved and redeemed all who would confess his name. No perhaps. Don't you love that? Our faith isn't built on perhaps. Love that. So here's what happened. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, as if God didn't know, alas, this, like Pirates of the Caribbean or something, right? Alas, 
This people has sinned a great sin for the third time. They made for themselves gods of gold. And God's like, yes, I, t- I told you they did, but okay. Verse 32, but now if you will forgive their sin, if you will rather forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me remind you of where Moses has been before. In Egypt, when the people were being idiots and when it was difficult to obey God, Moses several times was like, I'm out of here. Like, God, you need to figure this out. Your, your people are making a muck of all of this. Like, I'm, I'm out of here. And now he says, if you won't forgive them, then I don't want to be in your book either. I mean, what a great representation of a mediator. Failed, flawed, And that's why the Bible is filled with these kinds of characters to point ultimately to the better Moses and Jesus. But now God says, go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. He says, we have to keep going. Go, I'm going to stay true to my promises. I'm not going to break my part of the covenant, God says. But then verse 35 shows us a powerful truth. The Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron made. God was merciful. He gave the people an opportunity to repent. Those who didn't were killed, but everyone who participated suffered the consequences of their sin. Don't think for a second that your lingering idolatry will not produce consequences. Oh, the lies that our idolatry only affects us, that the pain is temporary, that any effects that an eating disorder, the pornography, that masturbation, that the lust after friendships or relationships, that all of this kind of idolatry, the pursuit of financial resources, whatever the case may be, that the effects are short-term, that the pain is short-term, and that it affects no one else. That is a lie. Praise the Lord, in Christ we can be forgiven for all of those and many more. Forgiven, washed clean. However, still the consequences remain. Many of you have learned already the hard way. You're now sharing with others, listen, don't make the same mistake I did. I believe that my idolatry was only affecting me for a short period of time and that one day when I got serious, I could repent, turn from it, and God would forgive me and then I wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. Oh yeah, God will forgive you. But the consequences of that sin, I pray, are very, very short term, but oftentimes they're not. Families devastated like many of you have experienced hearts and minds trying to erase images for years and years trying to build back ways that you've damaged your body through eating disorders and the like the consequences of sin however do not overshadow being forgiven for it so um This is the moment at the end of the golden calf where I wonder if you're wondering like I am, like, okay, so so what do we do with all this? 
Um, maybe it would seem like this would be the natural moment where we draw the line in the sand and where I just, I ask right now, all right, who's on the Lord's side? And I, I look at all of you and I'm like, all right, who, who's on the Lord's side? And we have those who are on the Lord's side stand up and we applaud you. And then we have those that aren't. We pray for you. Like, like maybe that's the natural response. But you know what tonight? I don't think that's the response at all. I think the response is the celebration that we can be on the Lord's side. That he even desires us to be on his side, somebody. I mean, that he even wants relationship with idolaters. With people who in our hearts are desiring things often way more than him. And yet he says, you can be on my side. And there's only two. You're either with me or against me. It's not multiple choice. It's not seven gods and you pick one of the seven. There is one God and it's belief in him or not. So listen, I've been praying for joy all day. And you know why I'm joyful? Because I can be on the creator on the Redeemer, on the Savior, on the one who's faithful when I'm faithless, I can be on that God's side. And he can call me son. And he can take all of this tension that I've created because of my sin and idolatry and in his son Jesus erases it all and gives me worth and identity. I can, you can be on the Lord's side. And so tonight, listen, tonight, listen, we get to celebrate that. And I know, I know there are some right now who have come in this place right now and you're like, I have lived my life on my own side. Tonight, there is an invitation not from man, from a gracious Lord tonight to receive the invitation to be called his son or daughter. And so tonight, a line is drawn in the sand. And you're going to ch get a chance on both sides to step over that line and receive communion from our leaders. And maybe for some of you tonight, the very first time you've ever said, I'm tired of living my life as a captive to my idolatry. Lord, heal me. Help me believe in you. I want to receive relationship with you. For the rest of us tonight, it's another opportunity to step over the line and to celebrate what we have in the person of Christ. We're idolaters who don't deserve a thing. We deserve death. And yet, we've been given life. So maybe this whole room tonight becomes one big, massive celebration of what God can do. My leaders are going to come up and serve all of you. 
as a church tonight, as a body, as friends. Let's celebrate that we can be on the Lord's side. Respond whenever you're ready.